0: Welcome everybody to the Fire Nuggets podcast. Today is October 7th, and we are more than psyched to have Olympic wrestler, coach, and legend, legend Dan Chandler as our guest today. The goals here are pretty simple, bring in great guests and try to mine as much gold as possible from them in about 30 to 40 minutes, short, sweet, and deep. Uh, Unfortunately, Joey couldn't make it here today, so it's just myself and Jeff uh, behind the control boards today. So for those that don't know Coach Chandler, Uh, his wrestling and coaching accomplishments are too numerous to mention, but here are some of the highlights. He's a 12 time, 12 time national champion in Greco Roman wrestling. He's a distinguished member of the national wrestling hall of fame. He's a three time Olympic team member in Greco wrestling. That's 76 through 84. He's an eight time Olympic coach for Greco. That's 88 through 2016. That is 11 consecutive Olympic teams or 40 years. So just real quick to put that in context, 76 was Montreal, 80 was Moscow, 84 was L.A., 88 was Seoul, 92 was Barcelona, 96 was Atlanta, 2000 was Sydney, 2004 was Athens, 2008 was Beijing, 2012 was London, and 2016 was uh, Rio. So that is just insane. Um, He's a seven-time USA Wrestling Coach of the Year. He's a U.S. Olympic Committee Coach of the Year for the 2000 Olympics. He is an absolute legend in the world of wrestling and USA Olympic athletics. And last but not least, he's a husband. Uh, coach, to anyone who has ever wrestled for you or even heard you talk about wrestling, your passion and love for wrestling is obvious from across the room. Any idea where this love comes from?
1: Well, uh, I've always loved wrestling. And... Uh, I, I guess it kind of got turned up a notch when I came to the University of Minnesota. The uh, Minnesota Amateur Wrestling Club trained in the same room as we did, and quite often worked out with the university team. And that was—it was primarily a Greco-Roman club, and I started training with them in, in the off-season and developed some really close friendships with uh, the guys on the on the club team. And from there we we grew as a team. We put seventy but we put six wrestlers on the nineteen seventy six Olympic team out of ten weight classes, And we were extremely close, and we're we're all very excited about the sport. And uh, I think it grew out of that, those relationships that I developed uh, with the members of the Minnesota Wrestling Club.
0: And for those that, that, that probably don't know, I used to wrestle back in the day and I had the opportunity to have Coach Chandler as my coach for a handful of summers um, uh, with, with Minnesota wrestling, Team, Team Minnesota, uh, the storm. And so he's doing this as a favor. He is a, a wanted man and, and I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule coach to, to come in here and, and spread some of your knowledge and perception to uh, a bunch of firefighters from across the US. So thank you again.
1: Well, thank you for your service. I'm so impressed by everything that, I see the firefighters on the news all the time and you guys are heroes and uh, unbelievable the work that you know firefighters do in this country.
0: Well, that's, that's, that's much appreciated, thank you. Um, you as, as we already kind of went through, but your list of accomplishments is absolutely insane. Are there any of those accomplishments that are that are kind of the most special to you, or more special than the other ones?
1: Uh, the two thousand Olympics was really a highlight. Uh, I was in Rulon Gardner's corner when he beat Alexander Karelin, uh, and that that was very special. That whole experience with the Sydney Olympics, uh, Garrett Lowney winning a a bronze medal, and then I was in Brandon Paulson's corner during the Atlanta Olympics. He won a medal, and then. Uh, Uh, We've had five Olympic medalists, or five Olympic medals from our club, and we had the first world champion, Mike Houck, first American world champion was Mike Houck from our club. So A lot of great experiences, but I think probably the the best one was being able to coach my son on the last day of the Minnesota State High School tournament when he was a senior in high school, but uh, a lot of great uh, coaching experiences, no question.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Paulson, but you also mentioned Rulon Gardner's uh, defeat of Alexander Karelin. So, for those that don't know, can you put a little context behind this? Um, who was Karelin in the wrestling world, um, and and what happened in two thousand when when Rulon Gardner beat him?
1: Well, it's it's widely it's widely uh, looked upon as the, the greatest upset in Olympic history, all, all sports uh, uh, Alexander Karelin uh, was a three-time Olympic champ. I don't know if he had ever lost a match. He hadn't lost a match in like fifteen years or something when he was a young wrestler. But very impressive. He crushed everybody he wrestled, and he was one of the most feared men in wrestling. And uh, everyone, it was kind of a foregone conclusion. He was going to win his fourth Olympic championship, and in the finals, uh, at, Putin was there. Uh, Henry Kissinger was there. All those people that were there to see Karelin win the the gold medal and uh, Rulon Gardner pulled off uh, a great upset. Kind of got him tired and was able to hang on and defend uh, his feared reverse lift. And uh, the whole the whole uh, Sydney Olympics were phenomenal. We we weren't expected to win a medal, but we won three medals and we. We only lost to Russia for the team title by, I think two points. We came in third behind Russia and Cuba, A very close team race. It was just a super event. And, uh, but Rulon's defeating Karelin was the icing on the cake. So it was kind of a very big big historical moment in, in uh, Greco-Roman wrestling and worldwide, it was really looked upon as a huge upset.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, and for those who are, are not are not familiar with this, maybe some of our younger listeners go on YouTube and watch this match, um, and then try to put it in context that Rulon Gardner is Michael Jordan at his prime, that he is Oscar Robertson at his prime, or Wilt Chamberlain, uh, or whoever your sp- favorite sports analogy is. And then uh, Little David comes in there and knocks off Goliath. That was absolutely uh, mind blowing, and one of like the few of the Olympic moments that are kind of seared into my brain you know you have carrie Strug uh, when she landed uh her vault you have rulon gardner and there's a couple other ones scattered throughout but those are those are etched into my brain for sure um so it's been a long time since i've had the pleasure of being coached by you Uh, but i do remember that we spent a lot a lot of time working on only a few moves kind of specifically the gut wrench uh, like a two-on-one or a Russian, and, and maybe a couple others. Do you feel it's more important to be an expert at a few moves in wrestling or kind of satisfactory at, at multiple moves? And, and I know this is kind of a false dichotomy, but but do you uh, do you lean one way or the other on this?
1: Well, <clears throat> my coaching philosophy has a lot to do with, you know, it's an individual sport. And if you are a phenomenal athlete, and I've had the pleasure of, Coaching some really phenomenal athletes, and I'd use Jimmy Martinez from Osseo and Michael Foy from Chicago as two examples of people that were just were just freak athletes. You know, you could show them a dozen different moves, and and they could go out and do them in competition. Uh, most of the people you wind up coaching aren't, you know, they're they're not million dollar athletes, and so the the million dollar athlete they can have a wide variety of attacks and develop skills really quickly whereas a lot of a lot of us i include myself in the second category not being a great athlete you have to train your body to react and, and do certain things through, through a lot of repetition you know when you go out and wrestle and you're creating you, you have to i always tell the guys you got to create your own uh, mojo you have to create something to be a great wrestler and a lot of that's just your movement and your conditioning and, and different aspects of wrestling. But for most of us, two or three moves that you can do on anyone is the goal. And and some guys they can't really explain what they did to score points. You know, like Jim Martinez could get in these, he would he would create scrambles and he would always come out on top. He was like a cat. And so some athletes have that ability to uh, just go out and crazy things and get into a scramble and they just had the ability with their athleticism to come out on top and a lot of the other wrestlers that don't have that ability they have to you know more more match management more control style wrestling i hope that answered your question but
0: yeah no absolutely it does um it was, I remember this back in the day that when we were on top and, and we being the, the the USA or Minnesota wrestling, everybody knew uh, at, at tournaments that we were going for a gut wrench, but more often than not, everybody knew it was coming and they'd been working on defending this more often than not, the vast majority of guys were successful because they got in just rep after rep, after rep, after rep of this thing. And it was so conditioned, so second nature and so polished that opponents had a hard time stopping that. And I think there's a a parallel to that with with some of the fire service, where I think that kind of what I'm trying to to parse out here is is trying to simplify our our movements and have a handful of things that we're really, really good at, as opposed to a hundred things that we're decent at. Um, and I think my mindset is, is kind of similar to yours. Like there's a couple people that can be amazing at a hundred things. Um, but the vast majority of of humans, regardless of discipline are, you know, that the, the things that we can be great at seem to be limited. Do you see this carrying over to any other disciplines in your life, um, where you kind of simplify what you're teaching people? Um,
1: yes, or- absolutely. Absolutely. And it- the, the longer I coached and I've been coaching since 1985, my, my motto has been, uh, simplified repetition, repetition, repetition. You know, it's about doing things repeatedly over and over so that, you know, all the different possibilities and things that could go wrong and, and so on. And, uh, in, in my coaching career, I mean, I, that's just been distilled, you know, it just, it's all about repetition and, uh, and the other part of my job, I do fundraising for Minnesota Wrestling as a gambling manager. So, uh, the the most challenging part of that job is trying to get business owners that own restaurants or bars to uh, choose Minnesota Wrestling as their partner in charitable gambling in in the state of Minnesota. And so, it, that it's a very competitive part of my my job and. Uh, that has carried over. I mean, you gotta be focused and be able to answer objectives and, and you know, kind of be a, a salesman, so to speak. And uh, that, that was very challenging at first for me, but we we turned out to be pretty successful at raising money for Minnesota USA Wrestling over the years also.
0: I didn't know it. Thank you for sharing that. You, you mentioned just a little bit ago in reference to this question, this kind of simplicity question and simplifying that there's a, there's a handful of people, the Martinez you mentioned, um, that, that can do a, a bunch of things. What else separates an Olympian from the rest of us? Are there any traits that you see pretty consistently in a lot of Olympians? And if so, what are those traits?
1: Well, uh, you, we already talked about one, you have to have a passion you got to love what you're doing and it's got to be fun. And I, I don't think a lot of people could imagine a wrestling practice being fun. But when I was uh, training, when I was kind of in my prime, so to speak, wrestling practice was the best, most important part of every day. I wouldn't miss a wrestling practice for the world, you know, and I, and I was a tree trimmer for quite a bit of the time while I was competing. So I was pretty tired by the time I got to practice, but I, I never missed a practice. And it's uh, because I loved it and, I, and it was great fun. And uh, if, it's, if, it's, if it's not fun to the individual, you know, if they don't have a passion for it and it's not really important to them, uh, that, that's a big aspect of being successful. It's gotta be something you love to do. Other than that, I mean, it's, it's different things to different people and, and other aspects of, you know, what that separation is. But for me, speaking from experience, I, I just remembered that I loved going to practice and uh, I, we had a great group training together. We had 15, between 15 and 20 guys on the old Minnesota Wrestling Club and <clears throat> we ripped it up. We had great practices and we great. Tra- trained harder than anybody and had a lot of success.
0: I think, I think this is something that, that everybody is interested in, like what separates the great from the, the not great. But I want to take this a step further. And, and maybe the answer is exactly the same. Um, or maybe it's something that's so nebulous that it's hard to kind of define. But what separates the Rulon gardeners or the people with gold or silver or bronze around their neck from all of the other olympic athletes
1: well to be completely honest with you (laughs) you know there's there's a certain amount of luck involved in you know somebody winning a gold medal versus somebody winning a silver or bronze you know it's the order of matches you might get Uh, it might be the way you feel on a particular day it might be some guys get injured during a competition. There's a lot of, uh, like you said, uh, indecipherables. A lot of things you can't really put your finger on. Uh, some of the greatest wrestlers never never made the Olympic team. Some of the very best wrestlers in this country never made a team. They got an in, an injury the day before. Or they got sick, or all kinds of different things happen. You know, over the course of my experience. Uh, it's hard to put your finger on that. It's, uh, I, I think a lot of it is the things we talked about previously, but, uh, and, and I'll use Garrett Lowney as an example. He made it to the quarterfinals of the Olympics and he, he, he was wrestling a Russian that was a five-time world champion. And Lowney pulled a huge upset and he, he went into sudden death overtime and he, got a takedown on the Russian and did a back two play on him. It was probably the most spectacular throw I've ever seen in my life. Um, Huge upset. And then in the semifinals, he injured his neck, could barely, they almost pulled him out of the tournament because he was injured so badly, but he came back and won a bronze medal the next day. So, I mean, there's, there's so many intangibles. It's really hard to put your finger on. Uh, but you know anybody anybody that makes an Olympic team, uh, they're they're in the mix. They've got a shot at it because of all the intangibles that occur during the games.
0: It's a good point bringing up luck too, especially with something as as kind of transient and brief as the Olympics are. That only happen once every four years. I mean, you have to be peaking at right at at that exact time. Unlike a lot of professional sports where you get 162 games in, in a year in baseball, and more if you guys make the playoffs, um, where you can be hurt for a while, you can miss 50 games and still have a, a solid season. So good point about injuries and sickness and and kind of just this, the how transient you have to peak is in, in Olympic sports.
1: Yeah, and a lot of it's attitude. And another example with Rulon Gardner, uh, we were in Sydney and we were, we were practicing, it was probably three or four days before the tournament. And we, had, we didn't have a, a, a heavyweight training partner for Rulon on this particular day. I don't know what happened to his partner. So he was wrestling with a guy that was about a, you know, weighed about 210 pounds and Rulon was at around 260. And I was standing with my assistant coach, uh, Pavel Katzen, who was a dear friend of mine. He's, a, he's from Latvia. And uh, this this wrestler that was training with Rulon just accidentally, you know, when you're, you're pummeling really hard, you're, you're not sure. Rulon unbalanced him somehow, and this guy raised his arm and kind of smacked Rulon in the face, accidentally. You know, it's just something that happens while you're wrestling sometimes. And Rulon's response was, "Oh, you want to play rough, huh?" And then he proceeded just. To, I mean, he didn't do anything illegally. He just pounded this guy mercilessly for about 15 minutes he got you know it just showed me wow he's serious and my and and Pavel Katzen turned around and he says oh I could smell the metals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you might have something there you know because Rulon had wrestled Corella like three years before and actually given him a decent match but you know you could just see that uh, he just went, he just got vicious at the you know a, a slight <laughs> tap his face. You know, I thought, boy, he's 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 got his game face on today. He's ready to go, you know. But so you gotta like, have the gotta have the killer attitude too. I mean, whatever sport you're in, you've gotta be ready to, you know, on game day, you gotta perform.
0: I think that's a good transition to to something else I wanna touch on. You were an early adopter of, of using sports psychologists for, for athletes. I remember even as far back as I think probably 96, you introduced us and brought in sports psychologists uh, back in the summer of like 96, which is pretty, pretty ahead of the curve in amateur athletics. Um, Is this something that you still use? Um, And if so, what value do you see in using sports psychologists?
1: Um. Well, it's huge, uh, primarily for match management. You know, you have to be able to manage your match. I mean, different things are gonna happen. They're out of your control, but you have to try to reroute the way the match is going so that you can have a plan and you get behind by a point, you know what you're gonna do. You get behind by two or three points, you have a plan for what you're going to do. And a, a lot of it is just, that's just—that's—that's a goal to be a, be good at managing. The match. And we had, uh, when I was uh, doing coaching for USA Wrestling, uh, we had a sports psychologist named DZ Hendricks, and he had written a book called How to Wrestle Your Perfect Match. And he had helped some of our other Americans, you know, Dennis Hall, he helped Brandon Paulson. And so I learned a lot from from him, and we brought it to our uh, Minnesota programs. But it's very important, I mean, any aspect of your life, you know, having a plan, uh, planning your goals, making realistic goals uh, and smaller goals leading up to your big goal, it, it's, it's been written about in, you know, dozens and dozens of, of books, but it's, uh, you can keep it simple and it's very important in, in your different aspects of everyone's lives.
0: I really like that perspective. And I think that oftentimes when people think of sport or or coaching a sport, they think a lot on the kind of tactical or task level, your technique and and moves. But this idea of mindset and, and ideology and psychology and attitude seem to be, don't seem to be focused on very often. Is that something besides bringing the sports psychologist that you focused on with your athletes, uh, either as when you were an athlete or with the other athletes and and how do you focus on that domain? If so,
1: well, there's a, there's a lot of different, uh, a lot of different aspects of, of sports psychology, but, you know, uh, one of the most, uh, important one for many wrestlers is just, uh. Uh, the aspect of of relaxation and uh, tension, not getting uh, overly or getting too aroused before a match. And some people don't get aroused, don't get their excitement level up high enough. You've got to get psyched up, so to speak. You got to get mentally ready for a fight. And uh, finding the right level <laughs> of excitement or preparation is difficult. So I mean, Uh, when I was an athlete, I tried, I did hypnosis, just to kind of reprogram my, uh, my mental preparation. And uh, it it helped me with my relaxation skills and mental preparation. So I mean, a lot of athletes do hypnosis, which is just a a form of reinforcing your, your, your goals for mental preparation. Um, But there's a lot of different aspects of, of sports psychology. But everybody's different. Everybody needs different, uh, needs help in different areas.
0: So can you just talk about the hypnosis just a touch more and and kind of what that actually looked like? Because I think when people hear hypnosis, a lot of times they're thinking of a bunch of people on a stage and making them do some crazy stuff. What What did hypnosis mean to you and what did that look like?
1: Well, it's something that you, you actually, you go into, you, you, you're working with a sports psychologist, a therapist, and you tell them how you want to program your subconscious. So my mind specifically was, well, I, I would get, I felt like some big matches, you know, like in the world championships or in a national finals, I might've gotten too nervous. And I wanted to reprogram my self-conscious, my subconscious to be able to control that better. And I just I would work with the therapist, and say, here's exactly what I want to be thinking. Here's what I want to do. And then he would just basically go through a ritual of relaxation. Get super relaxed. And I think we did that with a lot of teams team relaxation technique and relaxation skills. And you get yourself into that mode of being super relaxed. And then it's it's mostly the hypnotist will or the therapist will talk you through Different things you want to be thinking and feeling before a match, and so you learn how to have those same thoughts, self-talk basically. It's they call it uh, self-talk where you talk to yourself and you prepare yourself how you want to be, the things you want to be thinking, and the way you want to feel going into those specific competitions. And it's you you have to want it. I mean, it's not a guy can't hypnotize you to do something you don't want to do. You have to be on board 100% and know exactly, you know, what kind of talk you want to be hearing so that you can replicate that when you're going into a competition.
0: So do you think that some of these skill sets that are focused on on kind of the mental performance side of stuff, this, this self-talk, relaxation or meditation or hypnosis, uh, kind of goal setting... And, and visual imagery and, and, and some other things. Do you think that these skill sets, I think it's pretty well established that they work in sport. Do you think that they, there's a parallel to other domains as well, um, whether it be firefighting or the business world or, or going into a, a, a big sales meeting? Do you think that if people worked with performance coaches in other domains, that would be advantageous for them?
1: Oh, 100%. Absolutely, and and it's it's happening in the business world already. I mean, a lot of lot of firms have uh, you know they have therapists and uh, they have programs that help people that are struggling in different areas. And and once again, it goes back to individual needs. You know, I had a lot of wrestlers that, that needed that type of help, and some others that you know would just laugh at the idea of working with a therapist or a hypnotist. So, you know, across the board, some people have everybody's got different needs. Uh, that's another one of my coaching philosophies everybody's different you know what makes one guy a champion will destroy another guy you know some guys can't train at the same level volume and intensity as others can so it's uh you know across the board everybody's different everybody has different needs and you know what's good for one guy isn't necessarily good for another
0: that's a I like what you said right there I think that's a really good point and on one hand, it seems so obvious that you can't have kind of this one size fits all approach to any organization. And then at the other side, it seems counterintuitive where what is great for me or for for Dan or for whoever can destroy somebody else. But I think that when you start thinking about that, I think there's some truth in there. Um, But How do we know what...
1: I've seen so many great athletes get destroyed by coaches that and a lot of coaches still have this attitude. Everybody's going to do the same thing. We're all going to be, we're going to be, the, the team concept is important as well, but you know what, what you you can't coach that way with all individuals. Some people cannot withstand certain training regimens and other can. and I mean everybody's everybody's different I mean I, I wouldn't want to overdo it but you have to be able to recognize that you know what makes one person great other people just are destroyed by it and I've, I've seen it I've seen it in practices you know some of the teams I made we had coaches that just half the team couldn't uh, survive the training camp you know
0: is is when when you say what's good for uh, one person might be detrimental to another. Is this strictly from like a physical standpoint, or is this something that oftentimes it's, it's me with a sports psychologist, or it's, it's some other domain, uh, usually some, you know, between the, the six inches between the ears. And if, if that is the case where it's sometimes it's mental performance, um, how do you recognize if this is helpful to somebody or harmful to somebody?
1: Well, communi- communication—you know—I mean, it's, it's a big part of a coach's job—is—is is talk, talking to athletes, getting feedback. Um, you know, but like like I said earlier, it's it's an individual thing. But I've I've seen where some athletes—it's—it's it's the volume of training, the hours. I mean, you go to a training camp, and and some coaches would have you wrestle hard. For two hours or an hour and a half every day. And all of a sudden, you know, two of the top guys on the team are in they can't practice. There I've I've been to training camps and some guys just went home. Um, and and some of that's mental and some of it's physical, you know, because the, the overtraining a lot of times breaks a guy mentally. Mm-hmm. So it's it it goes back to the, the thing I said. I, I trained as hard as anybody ever trained and, but I loved it. And i have coaching now. I, I've got guys on a team that are great athletes, but you know, they don't make it. They, they might miss one day a week. And I just, I know that that guy, he's not going to, he's not going to attain his goals. Uh, but every, everybody's different. And the main thing has got to be fun and it's, they've got to enjoy it. They have to be able to keep that passion. And, you know, I've been in, in training camps too, where I got burned out by by a coach probably by from overtraining or, or whatever. But uh, if, once you get, once you hit that point where you're burned out, you're done. You need to take some time off and, and recover and get refreshed. But it's, it's very hard, it's a very hard thing to gauge. You know, you can't put your finger on it, but you can, if you're experienced and you're, you're, you can watch the performance of a team in practice and you gotta be able to blow the whistle at the right time and say, okay, everybody, we're going to the lake, get out of here. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's, and especially wrestling, wrestling is so hard physically that it's, it's, it's a very fine line between getting a team prepared to have a peak performance or a guy, you know, getting burned out and then he's, he's toast.
0: Yeah. I love listening to your perspective on this. Um, Okay, I kind of want to circle back maybe to something that we touched on a little bit earlier. Um, And the reason I'm asking this is because the vast majority of people that are going to be listening to this uh, live in the fire world. And it's something that's been intriguing to me. Uh, And I heard another guy talk about this recently and and just made me more intrigued about this. But if you were going to interview candidates for your team, do you think you could within that interview kind of figure out how successful somebody might be? Um, or is this something that you could only, only see by watching them wrestle? Do you think as you're talking to them and you're trying to, to figure out who they are and what makes them tick or, or the different traits that they may or may not have, is that something that you could be like, oh, this guy, this, that transfers over really well to the mat? Or is it like, no, that they don't jive and you can only see if a wrestler is going to be good at wrestling by seeing them on the mat
1: yeah well normally uh, you know if I was interviewing somebody for my wrestling team they would come with some type of a reputation or a background so I would have a pretty good idea yeah but the the mental aspect you know you would want them to uh, you know say the right things and get get a, a an impression of them that, you know, it hit all the all the right buttons. You know, I love practice. I'm, you know, I'm working, you know, they would explain to you what they're doing, you know, so uh, I, I, and I guess if I was interviewing somebody for a, a, a different job that I didn't know their background, it'd be much more difficult, you know, to, you know, people can say all the right things. It's pretty easy to, to talk, but then, you know, when they, when they actually have to perform, in the real, in the business world, you know, it, it may or may not happen. But as far as my team, you know, I'm, I'm always dealing with, you know, people that have a history or a background that I know in advance before I talk to them. But uh, yeah, it's a solid, there solid are a of, There are a lot of things that people are going to say that would give you a good impression. You know, they're, your first impression of someone and some people can read people really well. Others can't. Uh, but I don't know. It's it's, it's tough. I think in some situations it's a yes and others it's a no.
0: That's a, that's a, that's a fair answer. Um, I don't think I worded that question very well, but I I like where you went with that. Um, We just got a couple questions left. Um, If you had a crystal ball and could see into the future, any ideas what coaching would look like in 10 to 20 years? Would it look pretty similar? Would it look different? Would there be a whole nother, domain that would be introduced that's not in there now
1: well i think uh, money money is very important now and i can see in the next 10 years it's going to be even more important i mean i don't know if you've you followed the current world championships united states won i think out of 10 weight classes they won six medals and I can, I can link their success directly to the amount of money and resources that we have in the United States. Uh, you know, all the kids that start wrestling when they're five or six years old, and they go through their youth program, and then they go through a middle school program. And then as the participants get older, it's kind of a pyramid shape, you know, more and more kids drop out and then fewer fewer kids or young men wrestle in college, and then the NCAA champions and the the outstanding wrestlers, and they go and wrestle for a regional training site that's affiliated with a college program, and they're all doing fundraisings with the with the full power of a you know a, a Division One university, and their alumni, and so some of these regional training sites have millions of dollars, and so they're paying stipends I mean when I was competing we never got paid you know I was I was bartending I was tree trimming I was a bouncer I did a lot of odd jobs just so I could compete and I couldn't really you couldn't really have a a normal job now guys their job is to train a lot of guys are making forty, fifty thousand dollars a year just to practice with a college team and then if they win world or international medals they get bonuses and you know contracts so to speak i mean gable steveson's a good example you know he just got a he's getting a a salary from a regional training site he just got a quarter million dollar stipend from usa wrestling for his performance he could sign contracts so so money is coming into it i mean everybody now is is pretty much professional And so I see that as being amplified and uh, extended. And so as a coach, you know, we're going to have to raise money for coaches salaries and be able to continue, Uh, you know, it's coming down to more and more fundraising and interaction with the, you know, potential donors, the coaching of wrestling, I don't think is going to change it. It might change. A small amount due to rule changes that we have to make adjustments in the way we, the things we are trained to do and comp for competition, but uh, not too much is going to change in the wrestling room, but, but to make programs last and endure, we're going to have to do a lot more fundraising and find be more creative and finding ways to pay the athletes.
0: So if, if that's happening in, in USA Wrestling, where money seems to be um, almost directly proportional to or directly tied to, to medals, is that happening kind of globally as well?
1: Well, we've always been high. I mean, every, ever since, uh, you know, the, the mid-1950s, you know, Russia started competing in the Olympics in the, in the 50s and Eastern European countries. They all, their athletes were all professionals. I mean, they figured that out right away. We want to be good. We can't expect these guys to go out and work eight hours and then come come to practice and then have a normal life with a family at the same time. And so back in the, you know, the fifties and sixties all the, the countries in the communist block, Eastern Europe, et cetera, were all, they were all professionals they were all around a salary and they all were getting bonuses for performance. And, uh, that's why they got such a, they were dominant during the last half of the 20th century. And they still maintain that. I mean, if you're, uh, I think Russians and Iranians and Turks, if they win a gold medal, they, they get around a million dollars in rest for wrestling in some okay. of those.
0: That's uh that's interesting. I didn't realize that. All right, kind of one of the, the last questions that we throw to everybody, and this is mostly for, uh, for the hosts here, but I think the listeners can get stuff out of here as well. But um, is there a book that, you, that you've that you read in the past that you would highly recommend? Like, do you have a favorite book? And it doesn't need to be about coaching or wrestling or anything, but is there something that's, that's worth passing on to our listeners? Uh,
1: I, I can't really say that I, I can to tell you the truth, I, I don't read a lot of self-help books. I've mm-hmm. started, I've started a lot of them kind of got the general idea. And then I just put the book down, but I read, a you know, I'm, I'm more of a current events, political junkie. I read a lot of newspapers and magazines. Okay. If I read a book. It'll be more like more for entertainment, like a, you know, a fictional best-selling fiction. I'll read occasionally, but I, you know, I'm mostly I'm I read newspapers and, uh, magazines.
0: Nice. How about any, any movies or podcasts? If you listen to podcasts that are worth passing along to our readers?
1: No, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. I probably should. Uh, I guess I, I, I do some of those with, with wrestling or, or physical preparation. I'll watch some of those, get different training tips and, Things such as that, but, you know, mostly movies are strictly for entertainment.
0: Well, and that's okay, too. We like to be entertained. Do you have a favorite movie of all time?
1: Uh, favorite movie of all time. Uh, I, I kind of like epics. I liked uh, Gladiator. I liked uh, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the movie. Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan. I, I kind of like those epics. Yeah, I like some. I kinda... independent, um, I like independent films too, but I mean, I have a pretty broad swath of movies that I, I find a lot of movies, uh, very entertaining. I like a lot of foreign films. Uh, great book that I read. It just came to mind of the kite runner. I don't know if you've ever read that. That was a great book.
0: No, I've heard of that, but I haven't actually read that before. I'm going to add it to my list.
1: Yeah. I think you'll enjoy it. It's, uh, a good story about life in Afghanistan.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Thank you for the recommendations here. Coach, I think we're, we're about at that time. I just want to say thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Uh, great seeing you again. You look absolutely amazing. Um, <laughs> and I just wanted to pass on uh, just a, a big thanks for, for all our listeners as well. We really appreciate you coming on here.
1: Yeah, it was great getting reconnected with you, and I enjoyed the interview. It was fun.
0: Yeah. Well, much appreciated. Um, and, and thank
1: you again. And, uh, until next time we'll see you
0: down the road.